I'm Reed from Bloomington, Illinois. I'm Jeff Williams from Brooklyn, New York. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, please visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Mark Oppenheimer, is a religion columnist for The New York Times, a a professor at Yale University, which you may have heard of, the director of their journalism project, and now the author of a new memoir called Weisenheimer, A Childhood Subject to Debate. It's about uh, the struggles of being a a kid who is uh, not really sure what to do with the fact that he is... uh, verbally gifted and not particularly gifted in other areas, uh, not least of which is socially, um, and, how, uh, and how debate uh, brought him into himself. Uh, Mark, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's great to have you here. It's darn good to be here. Let's talk a little bit. About, let's start with your um, childhood before you got into debate. Um, you grew up in this kind of like uh, classic like Jewish Marxist intellectual family. Yes. Uh, my, my mother was, in fact, a, a red diaper baby. Her parents had been members of the Communist Party. Uh, and um, there are there are sort of legends about FBI files, though I think th- those <laughs> might be those might my grandparents themselves might have invented those just for street cred uh, right. in, the, in their crowd of friends. And um, so, yeah. And uh, when we were in Western Massachusetts, which is where a lot of those people migrated toward because there were, you know, lesbians and, and there was health food. <laughs> so that's that's how I grew up. Yeah, those were my those were my people. Uh, I was I was raised in a childcare cooperative where you contributed time instead of money. I, I felt like there was a really telling moment that you described it from your childhood um, that sort of encapsulated what your parents were all about, which was when your parent when your father insisted to you that he was a radical. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, I I mean my my father was. You know, not a. He didn't seem particularly radical to me. I mean, he, um, you know, he he watched golf on TV and he <laughs> um, he drank he drank coffee and he played tennis and he didn't strike me as particularly radical. But when whenever there would be some sort of political discussion, he not whenever, but some from time to time, he would say uh, something like. Um, well, I mean, of course, when you have radical politics like mine, you know, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and um, I think this struck me as a bit of a pose, though, you know, truth be told, especially given the family he came from, which unlike my mother's family was a fairly um, a somewhat more bourgeois business oriented. His, his father had been an importer exporter, which I know it makes it sound like he was in the CIA, but I think he actually was <laughs> importer exporter. Uh, and so, you know, my dad's family wasn't particularly political one way or the other. So I think especially given the context he was from and then having come out of Yale College at a time when it was still all boys and when they had to wear ties to the dining hall, um, the, the direction he went politically was fairly radical. So, um, but yeah, I, I would I would kind of mock him about that. It seems like an interesting sort of intersection of um, uh, sort of uh, East Coast intellectual preppiness uh, with uh, kind of Jewish intellectual contrasts, and then. Um, and then, as you said, it's sort of like lesbian health food community. 
Right. I was I was bred to be a particular to sort of embody <laughs> so many cultural memes and stereotypes of the Northeast because my dad, in fact, was from a fairly preppy family. He'd gone to boarding school. His father had gone to boarding school. Um, they were from kind of Jewish preptum. And, um, and my mother was from this truly radical political background. But interestingly, you know, they, they meet at the aesthetic uh, extremes because um, <laughs> co- communists and preppies both sort of like tweeds. They like natural fibers. I was going to say, and, it's sort of like an alternative universe version of uh, Quadrophenia where the only thing that keeps us together is our Volvo station wagon. That's right. That's right. The, the beat up Volvo station wagon, also very big in Western Massachusetts in the Berkshires. Uh, the, the the tweediness, um, knit ties, like the kind you're wearing, Jesse, in yeah, fact. you know. So. I have inherited so many knit ties from both sides of my family. The wool knit tie <laughs> is very, very big. So there was um, – Let's be clear. I'm wearing a silk knit tie, knit tie because it's spring. Because it's spring and because it's Southern California. <laughs> I understand. No, I understand. Um, but yeah, there were, there were actually kind of overlapping aesthetics on both sides of the family, um, which uh, you know pr- probably calls for another book. Um, so – you you sort of discovered your uh, penchant for gabbing, uh, your talking gift um, as a young kid, and and it seems like a lot of your um, a lot of your memories, or at least the ones that you chose to write about in the book, that are related to that um, you know propensity for talking, are are negative ones when you're a kid, starting starting from when you were three and you asked a preschool teacher why she was fat. Right. I asked my preschool teacher why she was fat. I once went around a clothing boutique that a, an old childhood friend of my dad's owned in Pittsburgh and asked the women how old they were. Um, though, as someone pointed out, at least I wasn't asking their weight. Uh, but it was, yeah, I mean, one of, if there is a thesis of my book of Weisenheimer, um, aside from it just being a delightful romp uh, through the 70s and 80s, it's that our society is very, very good at creating uh, creative outlets for children if they're gifted in math or music or science uh, or even writing, reading and writing. But if your gift is just talking, right? Because I wasn't a great reader or writer. I was really my thing was like verbal communication. Well, nobody likes a kid who just wants to talk all the time. I mean, that's that's a problem. They want you know they're afraid of what you might say. They're a little unnerved by you're using all these big words. And and after a while, they kind of also just want you to shut up so that they can have adult conversation. Um, so yeah, that was, a, a, I would say until I was like in junior high, um, ages like two through 12 were kind of rough that way. There's also something else that you, that you write about very eloquently in the book, which is uh, the fact that if you are precocious in the area of math, um, there's no there's no real limit to the math that you can do. The calculus that a seven year old does is the same as the calculus that a seventeen year old does, right. or a twenty one year old does. And you know, if you're nine years old and you find the solution to a you know theorem or something like that, if you, this, you can tell my understanding of advanced <laughs> mathematics is very profound. It's about as strong as mine, probably. Yeah. <laughs> if you find that x y m two. Last time I took math class was calculus my junior year of high school. Um, But uh, if you solve – if you're able to solve a problem as a little kid, then you're just as good at math as anyone can be. Whereas if your gift is verbal, you can have that gift. You can have all these wonderful language skills without necessarily having something that's worth expressing. Right. You have no actual wisdom or life experience. You just have these words. So you end up sounding like 
um, you sort of end up sounding like, you know, the, the Tracy Morgan character on 30 Rock when he kind of misuses a word where it's like Liz Lemon. Look at this big word I just used, but he doesn't really know. It. He's kind of a moron. So that's what you end up. You're a sitcom character more than anything, but you don't actually have anything to say. And the evidence for this is also that, um, you know, there will never be a great novel written by a 12 year old. I mean, you, you will never find a- actual reasonably decent fiction by anyone under the age of I mean, 18 or 19 at the absolute youngest because you just don't have anything important to say until you're much older. So what do you do with all these words? And you, you also, um, you know, and I think it's part of the uh, part of the theme of your book is you're also kind of struggling with just the simple fa- fact or reality of gaining self-awareness, which is one of the things about becoming an adolescent and, and then an adult. Right. I mean, and, and you're doing it through... You know, if you're a talky kid, you're sort of gaining self-awareness in front of people through all this talking, and it ends up making you seem pretty curious and and strange. So, um, you know, and you you don't have a crowd is the other thing. It's very hard. There's no organized activity for talky kids. So I did some, you know, some of the basic nerd activities. I was a chess player. I was a tournament chess player for a while. Um, but those kids often couldn't talk at all. I mean, they were often like somewhere on the autism, on the autism spectrum where like they didn't have language. <laughs> so they weren't really my people. Um, and I didn't like science fiction. Had I liked sci-fi, I could have gone to, you know, weird subcultural conventions that where I might have met kids I would have had something to talk about with. But my interests were like baseball. You know, you had some expressions of your talkiness as uh, in sort of the late elementary school period of your life that were really like um, uh, that were really kind of ugly. Oh, oh, you're talking about the. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I, I block that out every morning when I wake up. And it's, <laughs> it's like you, you just picked the scab off and I haven't had my coffee yet. Um, yes, I actually I mean, the, the ugliest of them. So I'd read the Judy Bloom book. Then again, maybe I won't in which Tony Miglione, you will remember, uh, falls in with this other kid who um, encourages him to make prank phone calls. And I thought this was really neat. I also at the same time was watching the TV show It's Your Move with Jason Bateman, a, a, a really, I'm sure you'll agree, underappreciated gem of popular culture. And you talk about the and, way that in this period, like a, a, like a fast-talking, smooth-talking, adolescent boy was actually kind of a cool thing. Right. There was a moment in popular culture, right, where Matthew Broderick is playing this character in War Games and Ferris Bueller, where Michael J. Fox is playing this character as Alex P. Keaton. Jason Bateman, I just think again, is totally embodying this character. And the renaissance in his career has made me happy beyond words. Um, And so you're getting these sort of young, sort of talky, nerdy, but sort of cool boys uh, on TV, in the movies. And so I kind of thought, wouldn't it be neat if I, like, I want to do something clever like Jason Bateman on It's Your Move. But I, he had all these weird gadgets that, that he knew how to do stuff with, and I just had a phone. So I started making these phone calls where I'd pretend to be somebody and try to, like, create, wreak havoc in other people's lives. It didn't strike me that this was unethical at all um, until uh, I called a sex abuse hotline. Oh, right, because this is also the era when, like, they're missing children on milk cartons, uh, another sort of mid-'80s thing. And there were hotline numbers everywhere. And I pretended to be this girl whom I went to school with who had, like, sort of had a 10-year-old romance with a friend of mine. And um, I think that's – I mean that's that seems to me to be a not insignificant part of 
what happened that you were you were a guy who switch, you switched schools several times yeah. you, for all these various reasons you know your those friends that you did have those relationships were really important to you and you thought this was going to be like you thought this was a great friend move what you're about to describe right because my my friend and this girl had broken up like they'd made it to first base and they'd kissed and things had gotten you know gone pretty far and but then they broke up and i thought well i'm going to get my friends back by um doing something mean and, and mischievous uh to this girl so i called this sex abuse hotline and pretended to be her and when you're a 10 year old boy your voice is fairly interchangeable with a 10 year old girls and i said that my dad was abusing me sexually abusing me and i gave my my i think i must have given my whole name or i gave enough information that um, as it turned out, I found out sometime later when the police came for me, uh, the police went and investigated, f- figured out who she was, figured out an address or something, and went and investigated her dad for having done this. And I guess eventually they must have cleared it up, right? Because, um, you know, I think he was not hauled off to prison as far as I know. But the police then figured out that I'd made the phone call. And the, the way they did this doesn't even bear mentioning here, but it involved handwriting samples from notes that I had left. I mean, I was into all sorts of dirty things. And they came and pulled me out of fifth grade. I mean, the, the police came to my mother in the middle of the day and said, you have to bring your son in later. So she came to my school and yanked me out and it said, you know, the police want you for this. Um, I did not end up doing any time. My dad, um, who was this kind of local small town lawyer, managed to persuade them that this would be the that he would take care of it and um so they did not fingerprint me or any of these sort of nightmarish scenarios uh although if i hadn't had a dad who was a local lawyer i think they would have i mean it it haunts me to this day to think like what would have come of that whole incident if i'd been a poor black kid from the north end of springfield massachusetts Um, but you know i was a lawyer's kid it was written off as kind of youthful mischief Um, even though that's like it's a federal crime to use the phones for that sort of thing it, it had a it had a pretty huge impact uh, uh, on your moral development as well. Totally, I, because I really had to look in the mirror and say, "Oh my God, like what have I done?" Um, I mean, I did have a super ego. I did. I had a conscience, but it uh, it somehow had taken a vacation. I mean, I think that I had just figured my, my the the prism through which I'd seen all these activities was so much one of. Um, using my wit uh, to do interesting, fascinating things. I saw them as practical jokes. And I think, again, this is back to your point of when your words get ahead of your wisdom, you end up often saying things that are cruel or doing things that are cruel with your words um, that, you know, perhaps math and science kids don't, (laughs) I don't know what the equivalent is. Maybe they end up building things that explode things that hurt people because they just thought, isn't it cool to, you know, make this potion. So when you have these gifts that get ahead of your wisdom or or good sense, you can end up uh, wreaking some havoc. Hey, it's me, Jesse. Did you know that this year is the Sound of Young America's 10th anniversary? For 10 years, we've been skimming the sweet cream off the top of culture and sharing it with you. Help us celebrate by becoming a supporter of MaximumFun.org during our Maximum Fun Drive, May 13th through 28th. We'll see you then. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by the Calgary Folk Festival, four days of musical concerts and collaborations in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. 68 artists perform in an urban park July 22nd through 25th, including the Avett Brothers, St. Vincent, Michael Franti, and Roberta Flack. More information online at calgaryfolkfest.com. By Humber College, offering a two-year program dedicated to comedy. 
Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at humbercomedy.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Mark Oppenheimer, is a professor at Yale University, and he also writes the New York Times religion column. His memoir, Weisenheimer, is about growing up as a lover of words and coming of age as a competitive debater. Now, there are these different kinds of debate. Um, uh, we, uh, a, a friend of this show is this guy named Jeffrey Blitz, who, who directed this movie, and he was, he was a guest on the show when the movie came out called Rocket Science. I love Rocket Science. It's a really wonderful movie, and um, uh, it's about debate, and it's about this special, this special kind of debate that, as, from what I gather, is much of comp- a significant portion, maybe even the greater portion of competitive debate in the United States right now, which is that it's, it's about, um, it's about it, there's sort of a scoring rubric and the scoring rubric involves basically, you know, you get a certain number of points for each each valid point you make and then uh, get deducted for every one that the other side rebuts or something like that. And what this leads to is people writing these things and then reading them out loud as fast as they can so they can make as many points as possible during the course of their allotted five minutes or whatever it is. Right. So that's where um, a particular kind of debate called policy debate, which is – you know, for for the past thirty years or so, has been the dominant form of American debate. Though it's so it's, weird, right? It's so weird, right? <laughs> so it, now, this is what's interesting about this is that this this rubric where it ba- the scoring basically depends on who came up with more points that went unrefuted, and therefore who you know it encourages really speaking really fast to just get in the most points, regardless of their quality. <laughs> um, the interesting thing about policy debate is it comes out of a kind of noble democratic impulse, which is that there were some coaches in the early 70s who wanted to make American debate as democratic and as fair as possible. They essentially wanted it to be reduced to a science so that any kid who worked hard enough could in theory win, right? And so what they did was they said, look, if we make it quantifiable so that it's just whoever has more arguments that go unrefuted wins, then even if you're not particularly articulate, even if you have no charm or wit or eloquence, if you work hard enough over the summer, you can be a strong speaker in the fall because you've mastered more arguments. Um, Now, this kind of flies in the face of what most of us think debate should be about, which is the ability to speak passionately and eloquently and persuasively to a kind of public audience, right? Um, So debate, debate has kind of divorced itself from what would be a useful civic-minded skill and gone off on this separate kind of subcultural um, inside baseball track. And they're trying to pull it back. The, the NFL, the National Forensic League, that is, sure. um, which is the, the governing <laughs> That's where body. That's to all of our minds. Right. The, the governing body of American debate is actually trying to pull it back uh, to something that's comprehensible to the average human being. This is, um, this is something that's in contrast to what you did because of some sort of trick of geography just a happenstantial situation where where you were in this kind of like independent schools league in a particular place and it just so happened that that had never that that revolution had never taken place in the places where you were competing yeah it like never got you know it never got to the i-91 corridor of new england um for what largely in the, the private schools completely avoided but even most of the public schools in new england 
for whatever reason, just never went that direction. So that debate remains this sort of comprehensible um, thing out of a Norman Rockwell kind of, you know, public square or town meeting uh, painting where, you know, it's two on two and kids get up there and they argue against each other about a, a topic. They're expected to be able to speak um, off the cuff extemporaneously and have some general knowledge, but it's not about who did the most massive amounts of research that they, you know, can bring to bear by talking as quickly as, as possible. You transferred to another school for your <clears throat> high school years. Um, and uh, it was like a, uh, it was like a, a, a real, uh, like a real prep school, prep school, the kind that's not the kind of prep school where the guys who got kicked out of the other prep schools go to, which is the one that you had gone to in middle school. Right. I, I transferred to, uh, from, yes, from sort of the, like junior varsity or even thirds freshman team prep school to, um, a school called the Loomis Chafee school, which is kind of a real thoroughbred sort of place. It's in the same sports leagues as Andover and Exeter and Hotchkiss and Deerfield. And, um, the, the people were very, very beautiful. The girls were extremely blonde and had really nice legs and everyone, um, everyone wore those J crew barn jackets, uh, that were very big in 1990 and anoraks. And, um, you know, it was, a uh, it was a kind of gorgeous place to go to school. I mean, l- looking back, I see that there were all sorts of there are all sorts of class problems with one place having this much privilege and then admitting a bunch of other people as scholarship students. Um, and that it must've been a fairly difficult place for some kids to go to school. But I was kind of, even though I wasn't from the upper tier financially, I was pleasantly oblivious to these distinctions because it was just very exciting to go to school with kids who were by and large, very bright and were eager to learn and where success was valued. Um, and also that just had really nicely manicured lawns. Like don't, don't underestimate the importance of, of lawns. There was an interesting, uh, there's an interesting distinction that you made in, in the mode of dress between uh, the kids at your high school and the kids at your middle school. Um, the, both schools had dress codes, um, but you, 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 write in the book that the kids in the high school looked good in the clothes from their dress codes. Yeah, they sort of, so the, the, the middle school, the kind of, there was something very desultory about, you know, okay, we'll stay in, in dress code, but we're going to be slovenly about it. And, um, you know, our, the label on our tie is always going to be turned so that it can show and, um, I mean, my middle school, like there was still a smoking section of the parking lot. You could, there was, so they were phasing out cigarette smoking year by year, like 10 years, <laughs> 10 years earlier, everyone could smoke if they had parental permission on file. We like and, to think that most, probably a lot of middle and high schools have a smoking section in the parking lot. Right. But when I was reading your book, I was impressed to discover like after the first sentence in the second sentence, you revealed that it was an actual section that was, <laughs> that was like, there was pain on the ground right. there was a 10 it was like a 10 by 10 white painted square in the far corner of the parking lot and if you stood within that if you had permission on file from your parents if you were a junior or senior and then a senior uh and then the next year nobody um and you stood within that section on a free period you could smoke cigarettes i mean that's the <laughs> kind of place it was and then i transferred to this place where everyone was just like happy to be in dress code and wore gorgeous clothes and nobody i mean people smoked but it was like you know after hours and and you know people were happy to look healthy I I guess I, I dabbled a little bit when I was in high school in this thing called mm. Junior State of America, which is sort of like the most low rent um, uh, debate thing you could ever do. Like I said, arts high school. Um, and uh, from what I remember of it, and I didn't I, I like I said, we sort of dabbled in an arts high school. 
um, there wasn't a, like a proper club or anything. It was just like sometimes they'd be like, who wants to go to the Junior State of America competition? <laughs> um, it was basically like a makeout club. But um, uh, you sort of, the way you present this this debate world, everybody seems to be working so hard that they don't have any time to make out with each other. Yeah, I mean, there there was not as much uh, uh, tomfoolery as one would have as one would have liked. I mean, the the kid I knew who was really getting the most action was, um, I mean, Zach Grinspan was going to uh, like Jewish youth group retreats, and he was always saying like, "That's where you meet the girls." Uh, as if you go to uh, to, to Nefty New England Federated Temple Youth, um, but I was at debate tournaments on the weekends. I did have, uh, you know, one uh, transcontinental romance with a girl from British Columbia, which, you know, a good call on my part, right, to be from Massachusetts and find a girl from the West Coast of Canada. And that um, began beautifully and and ended tragically. Um, But there wasn't as much as you might think. Uh, When I got to college, there were a lot of people. I was a sort of half-hearted debater in college, but there were a lot of hardcore debaters on the uh, college debate circuit who only dated on the circuit and ultimately <laughs> married on the circuit. And I always thought that was kind of sad. Like when you saw a sort of proposal coming before the final round of a debate tournament at, you know, the University of Maryland on a Saturday in April, I always thought, you know, is this the best you could do is to find a fellow debater? I want to talk to you about what you, what you brought, what you left debate <clears throat> with that you didn't have otherwise. A bad case of the clap. No, that's not true. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, I mean, there's sort of like, there's one thing which is like the thing they're they're always saying about you know high school athletics, which is I think a reasonable thing, which is just the uh, ability to work really hard at something, um, which I've never developed. <laughs> junior states of America didn't burn the, that into you, the, Jesse. The junior state the... <laughs> of America, yeah, the academic decathlon. Yeah, I mean. Right. I think we do have a certain capacity for just total immersion and connoisseurship in our early years that we don't have later. Like, nobody takes up being a deadhead at the age of 40, right? If you're going to like get into following a band around, it's probably as a teenager. And I think that similarly, if you're just going to get totally immersed in an activity and just make it your world, and there is a kind of pleasure in that, and there's something you learn from that, it's good to do it in high school. And for me, that absolutely was competitive debate and oratory. Um, the other thing that was great about it is, look, it's good for a certain kind of kid, probably most kids, to have some activity in their lives that really broadens their horizon, that gets them out of their small town, gets them to regional or national events where they're meeting other kids and thinking like, hey, I could be someone else when I grow up. I don't have to come back to this town and go into my mom or dad's business or, you know. And for a lot of us, I mean, for me, but also especially for a lot of other kids I met whose, whose horizons were really much narrower getting to go to the regional debate championships and meet other kids who liked talking and were from other towns and other backgrounds was um, was just pretty awesome. And, you know, I got to go to all over New England, but then also Canada and Scotland and England. And um, that was pretty heady for a 16-year-old. You know, you're, you're, um, you were a, a religious scholar in, in college and advanced education, and, and you write, uh, you're rolling your eyes, but, uh, you know, Tell it that is to true. Your, tell that to your PhD. Tell that to my editor. Um, right. And you write a you write a, a, a column on on religion for the New York Times. Um, I wonder if the I wonder if the way that debate is about that connection between um, 
feelings and, and humanity and the things that we can all relate to and systemic thinking um, and the way that the, there's an interrelationship between kind of abstracted academic thought and actual feelings and things that are important um, helped you in, in your scholarship and, and maybe helped uh, move you towards that area of study. Totally. I think that um, that sort of abstract thinking that debate was very good at really, yes, I, I found its closest academic analog in um, religion and theology, which is, you know, again, about abstracting things, as you point out. I, I should just say it's interesting that one of the um, one of the really great religion writers, religion journalists, uh, you know, members of my guild is Hannah Rosen, who writes for The Atlantic and for Slate.com. And she was a mega national champion at Stuyvesant High School. Uh, she's 10 years older than I was, but she like She's still a legend at that high school. She won all the big national tournaments and everyone thought, oh, she's you know going to be a lawyer. And she did exactly what I did 10 years later, which is she um, became a religion journalist. And so there, I think there is some connection there. Um, the other thing that for me was just that I thought it was cool to think about sermons. I mean, that was where I really came to it in college was, you know, if you're interested in public speaking and talking, the academic discipline where you get to think about that the most is homiletics, which is the study of sermonizing. So that's that's the other big connection. I think we all knew that's what homile- homiletics— I didn't mean to talk down to you there, Jesse. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, Mark, th- thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you for having me. Mark Oppenheimer's uh, new memoir is Weisenheimer, A Childhood Subject to Debate. He's also a religion columnist for The New York Times and the author of several other books. Thanks, Mark. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our editor is Nick White. Our intern is Julia Smith. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can download any of our shows absolutely 100% for free. You can also find this show and our other shows, like the comedy talk show Jordan Jesse Go for free, in iTunes. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me. My email address is jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. That's jesse at MaximumFun.org. My only request is that you not correct my grammar. I guess that's about all that needs to be said. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI.